Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 5, Episode 17, 99 Problems. Let's get this show on the road. So a couple of weeks ago, we asked if our listeners could take some time to give us a rating on a Spotify or review on Apple podcast. And we are so thankful for those of you who took the time to do this. Like, seriously, mega giant thank yous. People often ask how they can help support the show. The best thing to do is just tell your friends about us. Another way is to subscribe to our coffee and Patreon. And we're super thankful for anyone who does that and who has done it, who does it whenever they have the extra cash. And we really appreciate that. Another way to support us is to take a little bit of time out of your day to go and give us a rating on Spotify and a review on Apple Podcasts. That really lets folks know what they might be getting into when they listen to our show and what you as a listener think of the show. So if you have a couple of minutes to spare, go on Apple Podcasts, tell their folks what you think about the show. Thank you. Thank you in advance. (laughs) Well, that's one less problem for me to deal with. Only 99 more to go. Can we discuss the title, though? Like, what was the connection? I feel like I missed something. I sort of, like, don't really pay attention to the titles because otherwise, like, that, I feel like that would be a whole other segment to the podcast that we would need to do. I mean, like, there's a really blunt and obvious one that I don't like, but it just seems like they're making a really, like, bad joke about the obvious song it's referencing. They always refer to songs. But in this case, it is a song about someone complaining about promiscuous women and our villain of the week being the Whore of Babylon, I feel like is the very blunt connection they're making. Is that really all there is to it? You know, the whole idea is like, you know, if you got girl problems, I feel bad for you, son. And I think that this is clearly happening. But I think that there's like something that's introduced in this episode about like relationships. And we're going to talk about like marriage and relationships and like what happens when you're in wartime and people are getting married very hastily and whatnot. So do we want to go directly into the recap? Count me down. All right. Three, two, one. Go, go, go. Brothers are being chased by something. It seems very dire. Sam is literally being pulled out of the car by a demon or something. And then a freaking holy water hose fire truck shows up with a bunch of dudes chanting Enochian and save them. And they get brought to this like weird small town that is like completely just totally accepted being hunters and that this is the end of the world and they're going to be safe because of a prophet amongst them. Uh, who we learned from a drunk cast isn't actually a prophet. And she's been setting this whole thing up to try to corrupt as many people as she can because she's like, I kind of see it like the right-hand woman of Lucifer. She's the whore of Babylon, which is the biblical version of all this. They stop her by having Dean kill her, even though Dean shouldn't be able to, unless Dean secretly really believes in angels. And by the end of this episode, I think we know where he's going and what he believes in suddenly. Time. Definitely going to talk about that. But like, I feel like this is really the fallout of Dark Side of the Moon. This is what happens after the boys die, go to heaven and remember their experience. This is a weird episode where it feels like the previous episode is so integral to make this one make more sense. Like without Dark Side of the Moon being before this one, I think this one would not make sense at all. I feel like most episodes like, yes, you can kind of draw on the previous episode to get a little bit of context and it might give you like. You know, some are very direct sequels, like where, like, you know, they split up or like they have a falling out of some sort. But this one seems like it 
could stand on its own, but something would be missing. And the thing that'd be missing is Dark Side of the Moon. It's just, I thought it was really well put together. And what I suspected to be a one-off or like a filler episode, whoops, I was wrong. The end of season five, like there are very few filler episodes from here on out. And it just like, this is a, the sprint at the end of the marathon, I feel like we have just gone through five seasons of this. We just have a few episodes left to season five. And it like, these episodes are going to wrap up everything that we have been talking about for the last two years. There's a part of me, too, that feels like this is going to be a bit more of an important season finale. Not to say the past four haven't been big, but given that this was originally Kripke's vision of a five-season show, even if you know you need to extend it beyond this, I'm assuming at this point he knows there's going to be a season six plus, I still feel like there's got to be a, a lot of that original season five series finale mindset going into the season finale. There is one single thing that changes in order to continue it onto season six. And we'll talk about that once we see it. But like, apart from that, this is this is a Kripke original. Again, this is my first like season finale where like I'm really totally in the dark. Like the other ones, I kind of had like vague understandings because I had seen parts of the series like. Well, let's get into the long game. Let's go. I feel like I need to say this because to me, it never really made sense. Unbeknownst to the rest of America, there's an entire small town in Minnesota that has become demon hunters. They might just be so like cut off from everybody else. Like, yes, they have communication up until angels abolish that. But it just feels like there's some small, like very rural town who doesn't really have a, a major outside contact. And it feels like even the way they've militarized the church a little bit, that they probably aren't allowing people in unless they're... Uh, you know, emergencies or like special. But like they had phones and stuff like still like they some people had to have family outside of that, you know, like how did they explain all of the deaths and all of the weddings and all of the everything? I don't know. I just I again, this is one of those things where I just I will not be pulling at those threads because otherwise it just, you know, very quickly disintegrates. <laughs> I'm weirdly very OK suspending disbelief over this that they would just like hey, we know what's happening. We could try to talk to people and convince them to come join us. And if they think we're crazy, we cut them off because we know they're wrong and we're the chosen ones. I mean, it makes for a really compelling narrative. I, I agree with you. So I'm surprised to see weddings being performed at the church. But given that uh, the town is essentially at war, I think it's pretty unsurprising, actually, that there would be like a surge in weddings. This usually does happen in wartime. And it was particularly notable in 1942 when the U.S. Uh, joined the Allied forces in World War II. It almost does a service to the episode in making it feel like this is really an end time kind of moment. This is really like a war torn era that people are kind of like not really rushing into marriage, but like being like, why wait? We're not going to have time. Let's get married now while we still can kind of thing. It is rushing when you think about it, right? Like these people would not have. Got, but the, and that's that's kind of the whole point of this of this episode, right? People allowing circumstances to change the way that they behave. Uh, we find out a little bit more lore about Cass not being great with telephone technology. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, this is one of those, like, I think I've seen it in meme format or like just like text on screen type thing. <laughs> I mean, we had seen like we had heard about his troubles with payphones in uh, the end. And now we're learning about his confusion with voicemail. I mean, understandably, most people today still can't figure out voicemail. I mean, I just... Ignore mine entirely. That's the, the real reality of our generation. 
We also get Cass's iconic line about finding a liquor store and drinking it. I kind of perceived it this way, and the more I thought about it, it's like, no, no, he just drank an entire liquor store. <laughs> like, it wasn't like I found a liquor store and I drank booze. It was I drank a liquor store. I drank it. <laughs> and we know how how literal Cass can be. So there is no doubt in my mind that he drank every single bottle in <laughs> That story. Like I almost picture like a weird like him picking it up and shaking it so everything just shattered into one big slurry on the floor, just like oh, a like a trough of the roof. Oh god. This is my juice box. I love how I have no problem suspending disbelief for that, but like the rest was an issue for me. <laughs> this town not communicating seems crazy. Cass drinking a liquor store like a juice box. I want fan art now of Cass just like sitting on top of a liquor store with a straw sticking into the chimney. Artists, tag us. <laughs> uh, we find out that the names uh, of all the prophets are seared into the angels' brains. Yeah, that seems like just like intense, but I guess it makes sense that they would do this. This is going to be interesting and important later on. We get another banger of a line from Cass, uh, which is, it's funnier in Enochian. Yes. <laughs> There's such a good awkward pause after he says what, but what's the translation? It's um You breed with the mouth of a goat. <laughs> and there's just such an amazing pause where like I'm waiting for a punchline. It just is it's funnier in a Nokia. It's just so dry. It's so good. I just love how he's smiling about it. Like he's kind of like chuckling by himself and like the whole the moment of complete rejection. This like True moment of solitude and loneliness where, like, no one laughs at your joke. I love him so much. Oh, Cass, he's, he is so wonderful in this episode. We'll talk about him more, but oh my gosh. Yeah, we find out that Dean is a servant of heaven. Uh, remember when I asked you, like, do you think that there are circumstances under which Dean would say yes to Michael? <laughs> No, I agree. There's a chance that both of them would do it. It would just take something really specific. And, well, we found his tipping point. Dean goes to see Lisa and tells her that when he imagines himself happy, it's with her and Ben. Yeah, like there's still a moment here where it kills me that she doesn't just straight up say like, yes, Ben is your child. It's like just it's it seems to just be understood. Like neither of them need to say it, but like I kind of would have loved it just being like said finally. So that's 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 the episode in a nutshell, I guess. This is just a crazy episode. Like it doesn't have like the depth of like Dark Side of the Moon, but it's definitely one that I think like is like really digs into how the boys are feeling. And I think that this is uh, especially in the aftermath of, of Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah, this really like it's a great companion piece. Like it feels weird that we have a effectively like not a two parter, but two episodes that go so beautifully together. Shall we head to story time? I think that's a great idea. Today, our theme is obedience. And surprise, surprise, again, it has a Latin root. And it means basically what we still think of it as meaning today. So like to carry out the commands of someone or like to submit to their will. One thing that I find interesting is that it did also have like that meaning of like listening to or paying attention to. And so I think that there's also like in order to carry out somebody's will, like one also has to be attuned to that will. Interesting, because I have some counterpoints to that later on. Counterpoints to the meaning of obedience? <laughs> I guess interpretation of obedience. Fair enough. 
Do you want to get us started with Sam? So I have to say it's unexpected how this theme seems to have the brothers in like reverse roles for once. If you would have made me look at this episode and guess which one of them is the more obedient one, I would probably say Sam. Yet Sam is the one who's like disobeying and kind of ignoring orders from a higher power. You know, Sam defies the rules of this place and wants to save them before he even knows it's actually a problem. He calls Cass, which again is a very Dean move in this scenario. I know we've previously discussed Sam's like newfound distaste for heaven and angels in general, how he once had faith and has since kind of lost it on the uh, encounters with angels kind of soured that for him, if you uh, could put it that way. The idea of a town being saved by angels is 100% fishy for him from the get go. Like right away, he's suspicious. Something's wrong. Whereas Dean's a little more like, let's see where this goes. Sam is 100% in like, no, 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 angels don't do good things. Something's messed up here. Let's go. And it just feels like Sam was always the one who would be more likely to see order and be thankful for it. And here he immediately is suspicious of it, you know, and I think it's important to recognize how obedience is not a good thing or a bad thing intrinsically. And in this case, a, I almost see a lack of obedience in Sam that leads them to ultimately saving the day. I I find it really interesting that you're surprised by their, uh, like the brothers' respective reactions. We literally just came out of an episode that was dealing with like their childhood and particularly like the harm that was done by their family dynamic. And in this episode, we're seeing them reacting literally just as they did in childhood. Like Sam is asking questions, which he always did with John and which caused a lot of friction. Uh, so I, and we see that also in season one and I'm not surprised to see Sam questioning, like it makes sense to me. And I also just want to like add that I don't, I don't, I never saw Sam as obeying the higher power in season four. Like he was seduced by Ruby. Sure. Like in an, like in an emotional sense, uh, in the sense that like she told him like all of the things that he wanted to hear most uh, validated about himself and about the world and how he saw the world. You know, she was really, really clever in how she manipulated him into making the choices that he ended up making. And I think that that has made him even more attuned to the possibilities of that happening to him again. And I think when he starts seeing what's going on in this town, you know, you're you're going to be saved. You're going to save the world. Uh, you, you're going to go to paradise if you follow these very strict rules. It sounds a lot like you are going to kill Lilith if you drink all this demon blood and train with me every single day. So I think that through the power of experience, Sam is like, hmm, something's afoot here. So, yeah. But in terms of obedience, again, like Sam has consistently been like presented as like the rebellious one. And even in his like mirroring, I guess, that's been happening with Lucifer. That's also something that's very present in the narrative. So it's weird because you say that it, it it all makes perfect sense. And even like looking at other examples of like them being obedient versus like breaking from the norm. You're right. Dean is more of the and I mean, even to go back to the way he's described as being John's perfect little soldier. That's a that's a that's a that's obedience, but it's just that it feels like on such a broad surface level. And I think the last few episodes and the season four to five really have kind of shown that like they're more intricate characters because I feel like from like a very like distant lens, 
it all it, Sam seems like the order and Dean more like the chaos. So in a world of obedience versus disobedience, it seems like one would be more than the other. But this just goes to show how complex they are as characters and how technically they're both fairly disobedient in this episode. I think it's easier to say that they are they have both been quite disobedient in season five by refusing to to bring back changing channels, play their roles. Right. So I think that it's easier to say like, oh, they're both very rebellious. And Dean is kind of leading the charge. Uh, so is Cass in many ways uh, in like making it up as we go and all of those things. But I just again, I don't want us to forget about Sam, my little rebellious bean. No, it's true. And especially like, you know, coming out of last episode and to this one, I really feel like I feel like I feel like Dark Side of the Moon really was a turning point for Sam in this season. And we're now seeing a very clear repercussion of it. We're seeing a much more confident Sam, a much more self-sufficient Sam. And as much as he clearly makes the argument to Dean about needing him, I feel like that is less of a needing him as in I can't make it without you versus like a familial bond meeting i think it clarifies his priorities because i think at the very beginning of season five like he just wants to and you've talked about this before where he wants to do good in order to redeem himself right but i think here i think he wants to do the right thing because it's the right thing and i think that that is a shift in sam that i have long been waiting for This really does feel like less of a redemption moment for him. This feels like, A, I'm doing good because good is the right thing to do. Because I think that at his foundation, like that's who Sam is. To kind of see that finally coming out is is like a really cool moment. I think I really like that. Do we want to move on to Dean? He's weirdly passive this week. And I know obviously we find out later on that he has a lot weighing on him. And it really seems to be like this. The decision that's made at the end of the episode may have been something he's already decided but hasn't been able to vocalize yet. And I think we see that mostly at the end of last episode when he literally starts praying to who knows what or where. But this is literally, I think from that moment on, he's realized he's going to say yes to Michael. And this episode is kind of that linchpin for him to go like, now is the time to do it. I think you're referring to that moment in Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid where he's like, I I, I need help. And he's not praying to Cass. And we don't quite know who he's praying to. He's really rattled with everything that has happened in the last few weeks. And honestly, this entire season, frankly, and and this entire five seasons. So for him, it's been five years. And I think that he's getting like a very extreme case of decision fatigue, or at least like that's how I'm seeing it, where he's like, I can't keep making all of these decisions if in the end, like it doesn't change anything. You know, if you re-watch this episode or just look at it again through the lens of like, he has realized he has to make this choice and he realizes that there is no way out anymore and that he's kind of reached the break glass in case of emergency moment, as I've referenced before, which is saying yes to Michael. Finally, suddenly his like apathy throughout this episode, his, and this is kind of the point I wanted to bring up earlier was his obedience through a lack of caring. Like he isn't actively obeying the rules of this town. He is just so apathetic that he isn't fighting against them. And I think that just it's important to realize that he's not obeying the rules of this town because they are rules of the town. He's obeying them by sheer coincidence. And we even do see him finally disobey them when he just doesn't care and he does decide to leave during the curfew, which, again, is more of a I don't care versus a actual act of disobedience. And by extension, makes his other actions 
of obedience seem just the same, a lack of caring versus the rules. Uh, to obey or disobey requires some amount of like feeling towards or against the thing. This is pure indifference. To me, the heart of Dean and obedience in this episode, I don't think had much to do with the town. It had more to do with like Dean reaching his limit of like how long he can hold off on not saying yes to Michael. Therefore, how close he is to obeying the orders of heaven, basically. And like, I know that we've talked about how we think that there are circumstances under which people would do things that they had sworn that they would never do. And I, I just think that we're really, really close to having reached Dean's at this point. Like, you know, the whole point of this episode is how, and I quote, like the whore of Babylon manages to create those circumstances for the townspeople. And season four was all about Ruby creating those circumstances for Sam. And now I think that we're seeing what those circumstances look like for Dean. Like I said, I think Dean has made this decision before this episode started. He made this decision, like you said, back in Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Everything has just been kind of an apathetic, like following the system and just sort of like dancing through it all and just going through the paces until finally he cracks and goes, nope, I, it's time. I just feel him as being so disengaged with with what's going on. Whereas Sam sounds like, well, you're not curious. Like, what about this? And like, you don't care about that. And I think that he, and, and Dean is like, literally like the kind of person who cares about everything, right? Like we've talked about this before to see him in this state is like really hard because it just shows like how deep the depression is going. I think. Yeah. This entire episode when like reconsidered through the lens of he's making that he has made this decision to go give himself to Michael suddenly you're seeing Dean in a very different light. He isn't just being like, you know, distant. He's, he's distracted. He's thinking about what he's about to do. I think basically accepted his fate. And now he's just waiting for the ax to drop. The circumstances under which Dean is doing something that he said he would never do is basically like a moment of complete dispiriting for him. Like he is, he has, he's, been broken in a way, right? Like this idea of like, like these really old school, really toxic ideas of like, in order to get an animal to obey to you, you must break them first kind of thing. Yeah. So we're starting to see that in Dean, which is just like absolutely heartbreaking considering how many of us see, see ourselves in him. The episode started with a wartime wedding and it also looks like it ends with a wartime proposal, like not in a proposal in the sense that like Dean is like explicitly asking Lisa to marry him, but like the whole, when I imagine myself happy, it's with you and the kid, like, I'm sorry, but if somebody said that to me, I'd be like, yes, yes. A million times. Yes. You know, like, of course. <laughs> Feels very much like, you know, I'm going to war when I come back. Will you wait for me? And will you take my hand then? Except for the whole, he doesn't think he's coming back thing. Yeah, well, he doesn't think he's coming back, but maybe he just wants her to have his pension kind of thing, you know, like, because that was also the part of the deal with, with the part-time marriages, right? For a second, I didn't, like, click that you said pension, and I was just like, what kind of life insurance does Dean have? Probably none, or a fake one, whatever. I was actually reading an article in the New York Times about like the hike in the number of marriages in 1944, 1942, I can't quite remember in the US. And like there was a quote 
in there from Reverend Randolph Day, who said that, and I quote, the hasty marriage caused by glamour and excitement rather than genuine affection is one of the evil products of war. So was the whore of Babylon convincing them to get married because she saw it as like not true love? Thus, It was a sin against God to get married in a church when you weren't actually in love? No, I don't think she was. And I want to be very clear. The whore of Babylon, I, I hate saying this, but the whore of Babylon, much like Ruby, never forced anyone to do anything. She created the circumstances to trick and seduce people into doing evil. To look at this quote about, you know, hastily getting married for the, I, I guess, glamour and excitement doesn't really seem to be the fitting thing right here uh, over genuine affection. Was it her trying to push people to get married like quickly and rushly, even if they weren't actually in love just because they should be married? Like kind of like a more co you know, convincing them than actually doing it because it was an evil product of war. I'm not entirely sure that I think that like. She had anything to do with that, but I just think that it's an interesting, if completely, like if a little ridiculous take on this in the sense that like, I think it's applicable to Dean because I don't think that he would be saying this to Lisa if he hadn't reached like what we've been calling like the circumstances that are making him do the things that he normally wouldn't do. So, you know, forgetting for a second that like Reverend Day called it evil product of war, like I genuinely think that I don't, that Dean would not have been saying this to Lisa in no, quote unquote normal circumstances, which for Dean Winchester are already very abnormal. But anyway. Yeah, like he would not be there if it wasn't for the fact that he thought this was a final act type thing. Exactly. So I, I I think that in that sense, it made sense to me. I don't think this is linked to the sex worker of Babylon. Let's put let's call her that way instead. Talk to me about Cass. Oh, my God. OK, I think for Cass, the thing that is the most important here, besides all of his pure, pure comedy here, is the fact that we've we're now seeing Cass at a new low. And I think if we're looking at the theme of obediency, there was always some part of him, even though he had like, you know, turned his back on other angels and heaven to, you know, fight for humanity. <clears throat> Dean, um, there was always a level of belief that God was still there and God was still on their side and that one day they could find God and save everybody. And I think we're now finally seeing a cast who has lost faith in God. I guess is the best way to put it. He, he doesn't believe God is going to be there to save them anymore. So suddenly the thing he's been loyal to, the thing that has basically set up all of his guidelines and rules, the thing that he was obedient to, I keep on got a thing, which feels like a really weird thing to do, but it's the only way to describe it, to no longer have this guiding force to which he was obedient, he has let himself go. And we're now seeing some truth in Cass that may have not been seen before. And I think the important thing to note here is Cass doesn't like Sam. <laughs> Like, up until now, there has never been any level of, like, yes, he clearly prefers Dean, and yes, we all, we all know there's a romantic angle to this, but he never seemed, like, anti-Sam. He was just, I prefer Dean. But now he, like, he explicitly, like, your grating voice is so annoying, I can't stand. <laughs> like, he's mean to Sam. Like, he's a mean drunk. Don't ask stupid questions. 
Cass was only putting up with Sam because he was like lying. He was being obedient and good in God's eyes by being nice to Sam. And now that God's out the damn window, he's like, I can probably tell this dick what I think about him. <laughs> I absolutely love this. I mean, to respond to to your comments about him being drunk, like I just want to like highlight that in Free to Be You and Me, we talked about how Cass was learning to be a human slash hunter slash man from Dean. And like, what does Dean do when he's not well? And, and Cass even asks him, how do you do it? How do you deal with it? You know, so I guess to me, it's really not surprising that Cass would be coping with grief the same way that Dean usually does, because he's he's that's what he's taught him. He's learned from the best. <laughs> learned from the best. <laughs> he got 99 problems, but Dean ain't one. I think for me, what was really striking in this episode with regards to Cass was like when he was with Sam and Dean and the pastor and like they tell the pastor that like as a servant of heaven, he's the one who has to kill, you know, like the the whore. And, and I don't, I don't want to say Leah because Leah, like that poor girl has been dead for a while. Right. So like this is a different character. So anyway, the pastor looks at Cass and then goes, but you're an angel of the Lord. And Cass replies, a poor example of one. And like, I think it's just really important in this context, in this episode, like and with the theme of obedience, because like, what is an angel if not obedient and subservient to the Lord? Like Cass, Cass has basically lost a huge part of his identity at this point by refusing to obey the orders of heaven and instead like rebelling against them and making it up as he goes. And I just, I want to, I want to talk about how much Cass has lost in this war. Like he's lost his family, his friends, he's lost his home. And now we're finding out that he's also lost his identity. So like, no wonder he's drinking a liquor store and being sassy to Sam. He, he really, he's lost everything. He is down to like, there's, there was always like a little bit to hang on to. And finally, at this point, I feel like he's hit the like proverbial rock bottom. And the only thing left there is Dean and booze. Dean and booze. And let's also just point out that even when he is drunk and a little belligerent and mean to and sassy to Sam, he's totally cool with Dean. So, it, so like we have evidence that it isn't just he's mean when he's drunk. No, no, he's mean to Sam when he's drunk and nobody else. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I absolutely love that. I mean, I don't love it, but you know what I mean? Like, I, <laughs> I think it's so funny. Love your brother, so I tolerate you, but we're not friends. It's fine. We don't have to be. <laughs> On this surprisingly upbeat end of an episode, should we move over to critical time? Let's. Who were the masterminds behind this episode? Because it was a biggie. So the writer was Julie Siege and the director was Charles Beeson. And this is the last one for Julie Siege on Supernatural. And we're going to be discussing that later. Oh, I'm intrigued. Is there anything in the Hunter's Journal this week? Gregory was like a mentor to me. He taught me a lot about hunting. And honestly, saved my ass more times than I could ever count. He had more or less retired and moved into a secluded cabin that I often visited, like some kind of creepy vacation lodge. This morning he sent me a file. Something he'd been hunting for years had popped up. By this point, he was too old and weary to go for it himself, so it was passed on to me like a inherited curse. I followed the tips and info provided to hunt for this creature. Some kind of shapeshifter or a 
changeling of sorts. You know, the instructions were clear. It would not react to silver or holy water or any of the normal tricks. In fact, according to his notes, the only way to know it was the right thing was to burn it. And in flames, it would be revealed. I checked that I had enough fuel to burn it and the right equipment as I saw it return to its home. The band of them posing as a family of four, a mother, a father, and two children. I confirmed all four were present and waited for them to go to sleep as the file stated these four were a perfect match for the ones Gregory had been after. I lit the fires and let the house burn. I left and walked from a very, very safe distance. Firefighters arrived, and I confirmed that they did carry out four body bags. You know, I was curious what they must have seen, and how they had convinced themselves that these bagged remains were a human. I decided to go visit Gregory, I guess celebrate a good hunt. Only when I arrived at the cabin, I found my mentor dead, sitting in his armchair. He must have passed away weeks ago from the looks of it. So who sent me that info and what the hell did I just do? Oh, yeah, yeah. The horror strikes again. <laughs> Obedience is dangerous. You got to ask questions. Sam was right this week. Sam was right. I love how my mind went like Sam is often right. And I'm like, mm, Sam is sometimes wrong. Sam is often wrong. <laughs> well, speaking of people who are always right, what do you have to share with us this week? Oh, boy. <laughs> Okay. Um, so a little while back in one of our like post shows, as they were called then, we uh, talked about and looked back, I guess, on like the work of some specific writers of the show. I know that we did this for John Sheban, my beloved. We did this for Ryle Tucker. And we also did this for Catherine Humphreys. And we were sort of trying to see if there was some sort of common thread that we could kind of pull at in those um, episodes that were written by the same writer. And I was wondering if maybe we could do that for Julie Siege. That'd be super fun. I'd love that. Amazing. So as a refresher, here are the episodes that she wrote. In season four, it's The Great Pumpkin, Sam Winchester, Chris Angel is a Douchebag, and The Monster at the End of This Book. Two out of three that we wanted to eliminate in our... <laughs> Skip or no skip. But anyway. Two that I had picked on my five and one of which I'm super sad we lost. But I digress. What about season five? Season five, she wrote Fallen Idols and she also wrote Swap Meet with Rebecca Desertine and Harvey Fidor. And she wrote 99 Problems. That's an interesting run. It's eclectic, if I can put it that way. It's like weirdly all over the place. Like, I feel like I'm sure we could probably draw some kind of commonality between all these, but it really kind of like, you know, Great Pumpkin, like I said, is kind of a fun fillery episode. It doesn't really feel like a a mainstay. Like I said, we put it on our skip list. Spoilers if you haven't listened to our Christmas uh, skip or no skip yet. Chris Angel's Douchebag, again, one of my all-time favorites, and it's a super emotional episode, but again, really is just filler. But then Monster at the end of this book is like super pivotal and important. Yeah, it really is. Like, and it's a good one. Like, it's it's really good. <laughs> Fallen Idols and Swap Meet, both also fun, fillery, but like not particularly important. But then 99 Problems is hugely important. It's an interesting run, like you said. I, I think, because I was thinking about this before we were recording, and I, I sort of have some thoughts about the way that women characters are behaving in these episodes. And I, I just a quick, quick note, I guess they're all white women because the show is incredibly white. I don't really want to 
fault Julie Siege per se for this, because again, like I think that this is much more of a systematic issue and we can't really blame one person for it. However, like we do have to note it. The way that like white women behave uh, as characters in these episodes, I'm thinking particularly about like the great pumpkin, Sam Winchester, where like the emancipated minor is actually like a really old witch uh, who is, you know, like on screen kissing like a really old man. So to get that like really that shock value. I'm also thinking about fallen idols and the way that Paris Hilton is depicted swap meet and the way that in the end the demon is actually possessing like the girl who never really wanted to be like the really innocent girl who just really liked a boy and then 99 problems with both like the horror of Babylon again hate saying that and with Jane who is like I guess the most salient victim of 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 that character it's kind of a weird through line. Like I know Chris Angel is like, has like a really like empty spot there. Like, is there a single woman in that there's like the magician's assistant at the beginning for like three seconds? Yeah, there's the magician's assistant. There's also the the bartender at the very beginning who is not white. Actually, I believe she is black. Uh, so I think that that is the only the only black woman uh, in any of these episodes. I, I, so there's that. And then the other thing that I was sort of thinking about is betrayal. Cause I feel like betrayal is very present in these episodes, like the great pumpkin, Sam Winchester, like the witches are betraying each other. Chris Angel is a douchebag. I think is probably like the most important episode about that when it comes to betrayal monster at the end of this book. Uh, you know, Sam is doing something that Dean doesn't want to do. Cass betrays heaven by, you know, you're not in this story. I feel like it's betraying yourself in your fanaticism for something. I can, I can kind of see the connection being drawn. I agree. That. I think that Sam betrays himself by not standing up to Dean in the beginning. Right. I think we can definitely talk about that. Uh, swap meets. I mean, I think it's, it's pretty visible. And then 99 problems also. I'm sad to see her go. She had a great run. These were some, again, Chris Angel's douchebag is still like my number one, like episode just for like a one-off viewing. 99 Problems is another phenomenal one now. And again, uh, as much as we did put two of those on our skip list purely for like plot reasons, I do like both those episodes. I did like the Great Pumpkin Sandwiches. I thought it was a fun episode. Uh, and again, introducing Chuck and Swap Meat, we discussed. I didn't love it first, but I kind of fell for it by the end. It was a good run. Let's go and have a listen to what our community has to say. This week, we have a message from Lydia. Before we listen to it, we want to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail to respond to anything we discussed today. You can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. Also, we want to remind you that Mary and I will be answering the question, what do we learn in this episode about Sam and Cass's relationship for our Roadhouse patrons and coffee supporters on our Impala Talk? Hi, Drew and Mary. My name is Lydia. I just wanted to discuss today about Sam and Dean's heavens and what that looks like for them. So in season five, episode 16, Dark Side of the Moon, the brothers are shot and killed by two fellow hunters, Roy and Walt. When we see Dean next, he's in heaven alone in his Impala talking to Cass, and Dean is visibly confused. First off, he's confused why he actually made it to heaven, which is just so hard to hear. And his immediate reaction after this is, why isn't Sam with me? If I made it to heaven, 
why wouldn't Sam be in it? We see Dean's heaven a few moments earlier with Sam as a child, shooting fireworks together. Sam looks up at Dean and says that John would never let them do that. And not even in Dean's most treasured memories is John mentioned fondly by the boys. And that's because his true joy lies in Sam looking up to his big brother without their dad in the picture. Even going back to season two, episode 20, what is and what should never be, when Dean is under the influence of the gin's poison, his dream is Sam being a lawyer and proposing to the love of his life. Sam is living the life he had always wanted to live before Jess died, and he's just normal. If we flash forward to season four, episode three, in the beginning, Mary expresses how her biggest fear is having her children grow up to be hunters like she did. And that's why she tries to break free from it when she's given the choice to bring John back and live a normal life. I think that there is an important parallel between her and Dean in this way. Um, so sure, he brought back Sam from uh, to hunting to find their dad. But I think that ultimately his dream is to watch Sam grow up living a normal life and not having to face losing Jess and also not growing up with vengeful Hunter John, as we know. And this is why Dean is so heartbroken to see that Sam's heaven is apart from him. With uh, the Thanksgiving with his high school crush and then the cabin with Bones, and then finally when he leaves them for college. What Dean takes from this is that Sam doesn't really love Dean the way he thought he did, and he's upset by it. But how I see it is that Sam's idea of happiness is finally breaking free and taking flight from the family nest. It's not uncommon for a person, especially a child, to dream of independence and self-exploration. And I think that Sam really cherishes that those memories because of that, even if it's a hard one for Dean. Dean's heaven includes Sam... Because he wants the best for him. In the gin dream, Dean isn't portrayed as an amazing person, like when he drinks too much or how he loses contact with Sam. And that's because it's not really about him. It's about Sam and his happiness. Uh, Much like a parent hoping for their child's success and safety, Dean selflessly wishes for Sam to be happy, even if he can't be a part of it. And... To me, this is just a testament to how selfless and caring Dean really is and how much he truly puts Sam first above everything else, much like a parent putting their child first. It's just, uh, I wish I could hug him. Anyways, I hope this made sense and it wasn't too long. Um, I love the podcast. Keep up the good talks. Bye. Lydia, thank you so much for this voicemail. So we knew, we knew that this was a a voicemail that we had to listen after dark side of the moon. And like, I'm just, I'm so glad that we're listening to yours this week because it's, it really kind of brings us back to what we just, what we've been talking about so much in this particular episode. And I, I think that there's like two things that I want to talk about from your, from your voicemail. First is the Dean as a parent to Sam, because I, I completely agree with you. And I think that I I remember saying, you know, like, I find that their dynamic is much more one of like parent and child rather than brothers. 
obviously that's an issue. It shouldn't be that way, right? Like, let's be clear about that. But I think that for Dean, it gets incredibly confusing because Sam definitely sees him as a parent and Dean would like to be seen as a brother. And I think that that's also where a lot of the hurt comes from in seeing Sam cherishing taking flight from the family, as you so uh, beautifully said it. Because that's painful to him because he would like his brother to want to just be bros. But the thing is, like, if Sam sees Dean as a parent, then a testament to Dean being a successful parent in this case is Sam emancipating himself. And I think Dean, again, for the reasons that we talked about last week, and also because I don't think he sees himself as a parent to Sam, is having a really hard time digesting that. Because to him, you know, he says, like, it's you and me against the world. It's it's you and me, man. But that's just not the reality of a parent and child relationship, or it shouldn't be. It really shouldn't be. So thank you for that. And then the second thing is... You mentioned in the very first few seconds of your of your voicemail, you say they're heavens, which I found really interesting because that was something that we were kind of wondering about if they had separate heavens or a common heaven. So I thank you for for kind of like bringing back that conversation too, and thinking that they they do have separate heavens. Lydia, thank you so much. This was such a great voicemail, and especially on like the tail end of both discussing the brothers last week in this episode and uh, Mary and I being able to discuss it a little more on the Impala talk about their separate heavens and again, agreeing separate heavens. I'm, I'm on board with that one at this point, but bringing it back to the episode with Dean's like perfect gin world. And even in that world, him and Sam aren't close. And it just goes to show that like, even in his happiest times, the things he wants the most are to see Sam happy and thriving on his own. And that feels as a disconnect from what he says he wants. It's almost like um, I almost want to say he can't have his cake and eat it too, but I don't think he realizes that the option for both is there. Right. Yeah. Like he wants to succeed as the parental figure to Sam, which, as you said, Mary, is, is seeing Sam fly the coop and emancipate himself. But then he also wants to be the brother and have a brotherly bond and someone who's always by his side, you know, in a loving relationship with the familial bond, you, he can't have both. And it's unfortunate that he's in a scenario where he has to consider it. So it makes sense that uh, on the deepest level, all he wants, his heaven, are happy moments with Sam where he feels like he succeeded in taking care of his little brother and succeeded in having a brother. I just don't think that Dean has the, I don't want to say emotional maturity, but like the skills to be able to to make that difference, you know? Through no fault of his own, like frankly, but like... This is 100% a John problem. John put him in this scenario where he basically had to be two people whose ultimate goals technically have a, an imbalance issue. Yeah, of course. They clash. That's the, thank you. That's what I was looking for. Clash. Again, John screwed up everything. Absolutely. <laughs> Bears repeating once in a blue moon. There you go. So thank you so much, Lydia. Yes, thank you. Beautiful voicemail. Thank you so much for reaching out to us. Shall we reflect a bit this week? Yes. I honestly feel called to like reflect further on this episode, which I know feels like a cop out, but like, hear me out. (laughs) At first, I sort of thought that like my call to action would be something like, don't let circumstances dictate what you do. 
And I, I honestly still feel like this is a very important thing to remember, but I also wonder when it would be appropriate to let circumstances influence my actions. Like when exactly is it okay to say like, I did what was needed in the circumstances? Like, and I, I'm going to give you a very brief example. I never leave nine-year-old uh, alone in the car. But this summer we witnessed a motor vehicle accident. And like my immediate reaction was to tell him to stay in the car. And I ran to the people who needed assistance and I called 911. I didn't even think twice about it. I do think that I did the right thing given the circumstances. But if you told me like just an hour before that, that I would be leaving my child alone in a car, like I would just not have believed you. I need to reflect on, because I was so sure that I would never let circumstances influence my decision-making when it's clearly just not realistic, I think. And so like, when do I think it's okay to allow that to happen? And so just basically reflecting on like the role of circumstances in my daily life. I think it's super important to realize that we all have to have, you know, a breaking point within reality. Like there's always going to be times where, you know, you can set anything in stone and there is some amount of like circumstance you could never foresee or never think up in a million years that may force you to reconsider whether it be actively like in your situation where it was just immediate instant reaction, which I think you did the right thing, or whether it be something you're able to reflect on more in a, in a longer term kind of way. Wow, it's a really weird pull to make here, but this is almost kind of like the whole Star Wars point of view of the whole do or do not, there is no try, there is there is a yes or no, there's no maybe, and how we learn that that is kind of a broken code for the Jedi because you need to have a gray area and it leads to their destruction. The fact that they are so set in their ways, they refuse to look at circumstance and make exceptions, they ultimately basically go extinct. That I, I mean, good on you for being smarter than all the Jedi. <laughs> My son would be so proud of me. <laughs> what about you, Drew? You know what? It's just it, it's be a little bit of Sam this week. It's it's embrace my inner Sam and it's be smart. It's ask questions. It's think things through. Uh, I won't go into it elaborate detail because it's boring, but I've learned my lesson when it comes to like obeying someone just because the situation dictates it. Whether it be a superior, a leader, an adult, a parent, an authority figure. It's one thing for them to have that position and give you an order, but it's up to you to think to yourself and go like, is this the right thing to be doing in this moment? You know, just because they are in a position of authority, must I obey them in this moment or are they wrong or are they abusing their power or is something wrong? And this sounds very big and like tear down the government kind of thing. Like, you know, screw the system. I, I, I'm even talking on the small stuff. When a coworker who normally asks you to do something, asks you something a little different, ask the question. Just make sure you're doing the right thing. Cover your own ass, you know, be smart. Don't make my mistakes. So I've learned from Sam and I've learned from myself to think twice and ask questions. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Mary Vigourou and myself, Drew Shulman. Thank you to our bunker patrons, Katira L. and Jeremiah Thomas for their generous support. 
This week, we'd like to thank Lydia for their message. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Hive, TikTok, and YouTube using at Carrying Wayward and leave us a rating and a review on your podcast service of choice. And don't forget to join our coffee or Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to carryingwayward.com. Carry on our wayward friends. Mwah, mwah. You got ghosts there? Uh, Fluffy just uh, started the TV, so I'm going to go. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure how he did that, but I'm going to go take the remote away from him. <laughs> Like ma'am, I just wanted to watch the television. You gotta stop 